you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Hi, everyone. Thanks for giving me your ear a little while today. Last week, I went a little bit longer than I'd like to. I do have a tendency to let my passion get the best of me and carry me right away with it. (laughs) But I think it might even be difficult for me to listen along with that passion for nearly an hour. So I want to be more purposeful and respectful of your time in the future. I'd like these episodes to last from 20 to 40 minutes, but we will see how that goes. I'm going to have to try especially hard today to rein in that passion, because today I'm bringing you details about the third element of my interactive science lessons, the learning experience. Now, just a reminder, or in case you're new here, I do have a free download for you that outlines and underscores all five elements I use in my planning to create effective interactive science lessons for my online chemistry students each and every day. You can get that free guide on my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. That's the number five. So, In beginning to share about learning experiences with you, I want to take you back for a moment to the summer of 2019. (laughs) I had just finished what I deemed for myself the worst year of teaching on account of the fact, mostly, that student engagement was difficult and my heartfelt attempts to succeed at it failed miserably. (laughs) You might be thinking I'm exaggerating. And maybe I am. We are our own worst critics, you know. That's what it felt like. Many of you listening might actually be feeling relief right now as you listen to this because you'll be returning to an in-person classroom from a blended or wholly virtual experience last year where engagement is so much more than difficult. (laughs) That's my habitat. 
I'm a high school chemistry teacher who works with students and families that have been that have chosen distance learning over traditional learning. And while their reasons for doing so might be varied, the challenges I've faced for 10 years are the same that you may have just put behind you. I'm not sure I've mentioned this before, but when I refer to my classroom or student engagement as having been difficult or being difficult, what I really mean is that few of them even acknowledged me when they logged into the virtual classroom. Here I am, Ms. Bubbly, warmly welcoming everyone as they arrive, and I'm met with crickets. Now, I'm a second career chemistry teacher. I left the lab to be more social, more directly impactful to society, and this hit me really, really hard. Looking back, I'm not sure if it was any different in the years leading up to that 2018-2019 academic year. I don't know, it was just in that particular season that I was taken down by it all. And I went through a little depression over it, for sure. I probably daily looked to escape, to find a a traditional brick-and-mortar teaching job in my area, or an alternative remote work option, doing curriculum writing or editing or even tutoring. None of those things ever worked out. You know how the saying goes, make lemons from lemonade, right? I've also recently heard, turn your misery into your mission. Well, I did that. I picked myself up and I stopped whining about it. And as that school year ended, I spent a lot of time on the internet researching research, trying to find something that would help me make instructional changes to transform my classroom. And it was during the following summer in 2019 that I decided to make the switch to student-centered learning. Of course, at that time, I honestly don't think I even understood that the approach I adopted was student-centered. I had been working through a really insightful text called Visible Learning in Science, What Works to Optimize Student Learning by John L. Marode, Douglas Fisher, Nancy Frey, and John Hattie. I've talked about this text a great deal in the podcast episodes leading up to this one. So if you're just joining the conversation now, know that there's a lot more where this came from. But as I silently read through this text, it was like I was being hit by brick wall after brick wall. Not in the sense that I was being stopped, but in the sense that I was being awakened to this idea of students doing the work of learning. Early on in the very first chapter, the authors provide a lengthy argument for why, quote, students need more than demonstrations to learn content at any level. They did also accompany that with a thorough description of an ideal demonstration, scientific demonstration, and aspects of the way that demonstration was done that made it superb. So it's great, demonstrations are awesome, but it was these words, quote, students need more, that came jumping off the page to me. Immediately following that, the authors discussed the importance of social skills in learning, making a point to highlight published research that declares, quote, individuals with low science skills but high social skills gain more and better employment than those who have high science skills, 
but low social skills. Well, since I was lecturing all the time and relying exclusively on questioning throughout my lecture, there was no opportunity for students to showcase or hone their social skills. Any attempt I had made at that through the years had always ended badly anyway. (laughs) Students who choose online school rarely are seeking meaningful interaction with other students. More often, they've been badly hurt by other students, sometimes emotionally, sometimes physically even. Some of the soft skills students obtain from social engagement, noted by the visible learning authors, include, obviously, communicating, but also demonstrating perseverance, flexibility and adaptability, time management, responsibility, creativity, and problem solving. I guess I hadn't given it much thought before reading this text, but the opportunity to experience some measure of group work provides so much more than just what we think of as teamwork experience. That's all not to mention that I wasn't creating opportunities for my students to exhibit common core expectations. You might be thinking, has some of that's tied up in the common core to read and write in a critical way? Because definitely those are skills they'll most definitely need honed before graduating. And finally, an overarching goal of every teacher, you would think, is to provide valuable feedback. Hmm. So I thought to myself, how can I give truly valuable feedback the kind they can learn from and act on and make plans with when I'm always talking at them. And all I'm asking them to do is answer questions. Sure, I can tell them their answers are wrong and explain why they're wrong, but that hardly seems valuable as it pertained to my why as a teacher. That is to help students become independent, informed, responsible citizens of our world who feel confident making tough decisions. I can give you countless quotes from the visible learning text that further propelled me into the student-centered ideology. For example, in chapter two, they state, quote, science tasks should provide opportunities for students to make meaning of the scientific ideas and processes by allowing the students to experience or create multiple representations of the content, explore and identify patterns in the content, and at the same time, be contextualized so that the learning is relevant and authentic. You ready to say it with me? Wow. (laughs) And some portion of that claim is supported by another citation to another author whose name is Medina, And the book it was taken from is called Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. So in case you're interested on seeing kind of where, really where that whole thing came from. It's an interesting uh, citation for us. But in general, all that information, so, so social skills, feedback, experience, all that information is taken from the first quarter of the visible learning text, which is about, oh, I don't know. Let me see here, 200 pages long. So about, I'm gonna embarrass myself with the math here, I guess within the first 50 pages. 
So as I continued to read it, my mind had already grabbed onto some fundamental ideas and I think everything else I read just continually reinforced them. The words learning experience and student exploration are terms I would have used to describe what I learned from this book if I had to explain it in only a sentence or two, which you might be gleaning already is a hard thing for me to do. <laughs> Use a lot of words to say some simple stuff. But I emerged from the study of that text and my reflection on it with three main goals for that following academic year, 2019-2020. One, to collect student artifacts, because I never had been able to before. You can't do that with lecture and questioning and note-taking. Two, to enhance rigor, because I still have the sneaking suspicion I'm a little too soft. And three, to foster growth mindset. I wanted evidence of their learning. I wanted that learning to be challenging, especially considering the 60% mindset I've discussed in former episodes with you. It needed to go beyond the basics, and I wanted my students to feel loved and nurtured through the learning process, both by me, their teacher, but also to learn to give themselves grace in the doing of learning. And that's where my lesson planning began. That was the thought process that led to lab in every lesson. And the learning experience was the central main component of that at the time. You could be thinking, <laughs> as I was, um, you're a cyber school teacher. Don't think that didn't give me major pause. I thought, how was I going to create meaningful learning experiences in science for students who couldn't put their hands on anything? Without the school providing them with materials, we couldn't ensure equity. In fact, our school used to provide students with a box of materials, um, simple chemicals and equipment to do some wet labs. And eventually, we, the staff, the teachers, we recommended they discontinue that practice because the boxes weren't always packed consistently or there were household items, you know, what, the, what they called household items, ordinary, everyday household items left out of that box that every student didn't happen to have in their homes. This whole thing interrupted learning more than it helped it. And it is definitely a major challenge of online learning, for sure, in science, my goodness. You could do math anywhere, you could do reading anywhere, but science, everyone thinks you have to have, and to some degree you do, have to have certain materials around to make observations of certain systems. When I meet people and I tell them I teach chemistry for a cyber school, after this really uncomfortable response I get, it's like, oh, <laughs> because educators anywhere in my area in Pennsylvania, they're often indoctrinated with this notion that cyber schools are bad, bad, bad. But eventually they, they realize they need to continue the conversation. They say, hmm, well, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, kind of cynically. It's a totally fair question, though. I turned to technology. I had already stumbled on a fantastic website called CK12. And you can go there. It's, uh, the website is www.ck12.org. CK12. 
during that school year, I had stumbled on that as I searched for alternatives to our usual virtual, quote, lab assignments. Now, I would love to tell you all about this website. I'd love to publish a million blog posts about it, show demonstrations and all of that. But they have a very specific and detailed set of copyright rules, which I think, I don't think, it definitely prohibits any commercial use of their materials. Even so far as I can tell, what I think is using their name in writing, CK12. I'm not even able to write that anywhere. So you won't see my written work publicly endorsing them. Not because I don't want to, but because I don't want the fallout of that since I am in the business of selling prepared lessons which contain their materials. And just to clarify any confusion, because it's totally confusing to me, I haven't you know, sought the advice of someone who actually knows the law yet. (laughs) But but I have talked directly to representatives of CK-12. And what I have learned is that it's completely legal for me to share links to their material, just nothing else. So I can't label them. I can't say what they're about. I can't do any of that. But before I wrap up speaking about them entirely, because now I'm off on a total thing here, I want to let you know that my visible learning study, that text, was happening concurrent to my participation in a certification program CK12 offers, which teaches people how to use their curriculum tools. And there are so many curriculum tools. I would highly recommend this to anyone who's listening who wants to increase your um, use of your integration of technology in the classroom in a meaningful way, in a way that really supports students even outside the classroom. Regularly in my instruction, I use their customizable virtual textbooks and something called adaptive practice sets. But I found CK12, as I mentioned already, as I searched for science simulations. I was looking for technology to give me experiences, and they do have an excellent library of chemistry and physics simulations. There's some biology, there's some other stuff going on there too. So don't think, if you're listening to this, you don't, I don't teach chemistry or physics, that's okay. okay. Go check them out if you don't know about them already. This company, I predict, will go on to create more and more for us to use as teachers. So yeah, I can't speak about them highly enough. I digress. <laughs> this is why I end up talking for 15 minutes instead of 30. But I, I would be totally remiss to not throw them out there at you if you're like, how do I do this? What do I do? You know, I don't teach chemistry. I can't use your stuff. How do I make this work? I mean, truly, even if you don't teach science, CK12 still has a lot to offer. So a little plug for them there. Anyway, I turned to technology in the form of simulations, for sure. I understood this idea that if the students were experiencing and the students were exploring, that would form the best foundation for a lesson. And there are some providers of science simulations that are bookmarked in my browsers I also want to share with you because they provide that ultimate experience. We're not all listening, teaching the same thing. Um, And these are definitely a physical science leaning, but some of them offer a whole wide range. So here's a few for you to look at. You might want to write them down. We've got FET at, um, the website is P-H-E-T, FET with a (laughs) P-H, 
for my 90s girls and gals out there, gals and guys, phet.colorado.edu. That's the University of Colorado at Boulder product that is amazing. And I guess most science educators are already familiar with them because if you do a quick science simulations Google search, they're probably going to be in the top, top. I have also had great success with some other lesser known and lesser Googleable <laughs> um, establishments, one called Sim Bucket. That's www.simbucket.com. They too have a lot of chemistry and physics-based offerings, but would also, they're simple enough. Um, and, you know, I think that's the thing about learning experiences. If you take a minute, go to my teacher paid teacher site and see the few reviews I've gotten so far, they span the gamut from sixth grade to higher education because a properly identified learning experience with a skeleton of what you want, what your outcomes are, your success criteria that we've talked about, can really be differentiated for the level that you need. So uh, these would definitely also serve middle school if you're listening, and uh, physical science students as well, maybe some earth science. There's also something called the Concord Consortium, and that's found at Learn. L-E-A-R-N dot Concord, C-O-N-C-O-R-D dot org, learn dot Concord dot org, and their resources span all of STEM. Beyond just the physical sciences, they include earth and space science, engineering principles, and life sciences. And they're, they're awesome. I love them too. Um, also, what I assume is the University of Wisconsin has a website. The address here is www.wisc-online.com. www.wisc-online.com. And they house tutorials with rich animation for biology, chemistry, physics, earth science, and what they call health sciences, as well as other STEM disciplines like computer sciences and engineering. I have relied heavily on all these sources and more. <laughs> I don't have a comprehensive list I've made right now, but those are my bookmarked ones, um, to provide my students with rich, meaningful learning experiences. While this may not have been possible for all teachers to similarly do prior to COVID, when perhaps there was not a one-to-one -one technology provided in every classroom, it is my understanding that funding provided for those, uh, that funding, COVID funding, provided for those equipment purchases. And I would guess now, many of you listening would have the opportunity to include more technology in your instruction. So something to explore is certainly something to think about. For me as a chemistry teacher, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, even having been through school, I was a teaching assistant at Penn State University. I was an adjunct instructor at a branch campus of Penn State University. I um, was a co-op teacher, you know, before I started teaching at Agora, and I just look back on that and wish I had some of this to negotiate through all that microscopic stuff. Because the content I teach is sub-microscopic. Many people think of chemistry as a collection of booms and bangs and light shows. Students are kind of excited to do chemistry on the heels of biology. You know, maybe they don't want to cut apart animals 
and uh, like investigate their insides. But hey, I'll mix two things together and make this over over um, running volcano or whatever we do. But what they don't realize is that at least half of the high school chemistry curriculum describes the subatomic microscopic world, the atom and electrons and how they're playing along. And we would never, ever be able to see that were it not for video. Or, and, and now taking it a step higher with simulation where you can actually control how many are there or where they go and see how the you know, see how things change. Students need to learn and understand all that. And individual imagery goes a long way, but just talking through it as the teacher doesn't provide them with experience and exploration. So I'll give you one great example of a learning experience. It's one of my favorite examples, though I do have many. It's found in my free product series on isotopes. So shameless plug here. <laughs> on both my website, labineverylesson.com slash shop and on my teacher's pay teacher store. I've recently made every type of product that I sell free for my isotope lesson. That's to say, I've made available the learning experience separate from the complete interactive science lesson, which includes the learning experience, the basic digital notebook and the premium digital notebook, both of which include the learning experience. And I made them all available separately and free. So teachers can download them to examine any, any one of them for their benefits or all of them to see the differences between the products. You know, not so much for sale as much as, as I started preparing podcast episodes and trying to give you some insight into the background of how I build my lessons. I really feel like for those of you listening your teachers, <laughs> and I'm talking about how important it is to experience things. I struggle, honestly, even doing this podcast sometimes because words don't do enough. You know, there are some things we just need to see. And so I would, I I don't care if you teach, you know, biology or, um, I don't know, some earth science. You can log in there, download the freebies, check out how I put them together, and... Um, I wanted to mention this now, especially because we're talking about learning experiences today, and I'd still really love for you to see how those other four elements of the lab and every lesson formula work to support and deepen the learning experiences. You know, for those of you listening, for those of you interested in, hey, maybe she's got some cool products for um, me to teach chemistry. I'm making all the learning experiences available in the past. Last year, they were wildly popular, but I they just threw them out there as ideas because so much is copyrighted. I just shared the links that I used. I gave a little synopsis of how I used it, but I didn't really give you the less, I didn't give you the experience, but I've changed that. I've increased the price on that just a little bit. They're $4, but you can have all the learning experiences that I'm talking about here and add your own other four elements to them or no other elements, that's up to you. Everybody's different, right? But back to the isotope learning experience, it has so many dimensions. That's part of why I love it, love it, love it so much. The action the students take in their exploration, in their experience is quite simple. In the simulation, and this is a simulation provided by FET at the University of Colorado, students merely are building isotopes. 
And for those of you not familiar, you don't recall what an isotope is, all they're doing is clicking an element from the periodic table, and then they are adding or removing neutrons to and from a depiction of that atom. But in this simple movement, what they're also doing is changing some characteristics about that atom that we can document. So they're also observing and recording the number of each subatomic particle in the atom, the protons, neutrons, and electrons. They're recording the mass number of the atom, the exact atomic mass of the atom. Those two features, wildly important for them to know the difference between. They're recording its name because isotopes have unique naming features. Its symbol, again, unique way to symbolize isotopes, and its abundance in nature, which becomes an important concept to a future lesson, the average atomic mass. This activity pretty much entirely used to be used as a lab assignment. My whole chem team gave their own students to work on independently as they completed a data table and answered some questions in a worksheet format. Um, at my school, we have not really introduced or enforced a formal lab report yet, so that was never a thing. But it was kind of one of these things where we taught isotopes. We had a whole lesson day, maybe two on isotopes. And then we go, okay, here's your isotope lab. Go do it. And they'd submit it, and we would grade it, and maybe add some comments. But that, of course, was only after I demonstrated it for them in class so that when they got to it, they weren't like, huh, what do I do? So by transforming this into a class time activity, I was able to add that social aspect that the visible learning author says so important by assigning different atoms to different students, or you could do that with different small groups and having them report back on their data to the main group. And guess what? This is just like what scientists do in daily and weekly meetings. I'm increasing their communication, their responsibility, their time management. They can't procrastinate on it, right? Which is a huge problem in my model. Then, using that data, we could, as a whole group, with me as a guide, at the end, do some data-dependent analysis, wherein I could formatively assess the effectiveness of the experience, how much they understood, provide an opportunity for them to think critically if they hadn't yet, in all this, all this data, all these numbers, picked out the patterns and the differences and the similarities, and I can redirect anybody who's shown me they didn't quite get, get it, all while learning the fundamental idea that isotopes are atoms with different numbers of neutrons that have different weights and names and stabilities. They uncover that information through exploring themselves. And that's the teacher I always wanted to be. In my mind, this leads, it directly answers my why. You know, if I'm asking them to be responsible, get informed, make decisions in my class, then that's just one iota of, you know, experience they have in doing it when they leave school entirely. I wanted to support students doing science, not labs. Doing science, investigating and exploring to learn that which they did not know. And you know what? In all of this, if, you, if it becomes complex for you, I would just suggest you take a moment and think about our elementary teacher friends. Or maybe go visit them. 
You know, take a take a walk in your hallway someday and just like peek in on what's going on in there. They work on the premise that students aren't going to have robust memories to recall nuances of content. They rely heavily on experience to guide learning. To prepare my lessons, honestly, guys, I put on my mom brain. I ask myself, what could they do to extract this idea? And of course, when I'm using simulations and technology, I am at the whims of what's available. And it's in, you know, doing this, let me just say as an aside, doing this has opened my mind so profoundly to all the professionalism that we house in us. You know, there is no such thing as just a teacher. To say we wear many hats is like, ooh, the understatement of the century, right? And in talking with you, I personally don't even deal with a lot of classroom management stuff beyond engagement. So I, I feel you. <laughs> what I'm saying is if you ever feel like as a teacher you wanted to do so much more than just manage the classroom and that's what you find yourself doing a lot, um, you know, your content knowledge, your professionalism goes into making all of these decisions that are so impactful on their learning. And that's encouraging to me because I am kind of feel like I probably could be a forever student myself just because I get excited. I get excited about using my brain. I'm a mental, I'm a mental energy person. But back to our learning experiences. Student-controlled simulations, guess what? They are not always available for every lesson you're going to teach, even in chemistry, even in physics where they are abounding. There are topics I've scoured the internet for to no avail. And when this happened, I revisited my goals. I thought to myself, what do I have to accomplish in this lesson? I, me personally, not what a student's going to do, I want to collect artifacts of their learning. I need something that shows me they've engaged, they've explored, they've experienced, so I can show my principal if I want to. I want to enhance rigor. I want to challenge them beyond the 60% they might have already come in with. And I want them to feel good about learning. I want to foster growth mindset. And I rationalized that as long as my students did the heavy lifting of learning, if I took the list of resources I already had and things that I already used to show them or tell them about concepts and theories and ideas, processes, tasks, then I could accomplish those goals of mine that were instructional. And so that's what I did. Where I couldn't find or identify a simulation, I leaned on my library of YouTube videos I'd amassed over the years. The ones I'd show them to provide relevance or some other perspective, I made those the center of the learning experience. One awesome example I have of using video in this way is the lesson I've written about atomic theory scientists and the history of atomic models developed over time. I found a fantastic cartoonized depiction on YouTube. And it describes a little more than I'd have presented in class myself. It includes an account of all the scientists, from Democritus right through Heisenberg, when I really just want to focus on Democritus through Rutherford at the time that I'm giving this lesson. 
but it's really great in every other way. So I started there. And that's the first thing I will tell you about choosing any technology. It may not be perfect, right? It may not be exactly what you would like to, but what you have them do with it is the experience. And you can tailor. Some of the simulations and the videos I provide students are way bigger than I need them to be. They are appropriate for introductory level college students or AP students, but I can tailor the needs to my students. I just don't have them go in that place. I don't ask them those certain questions. I don't have them investigate that portion. So because the learning experience is not in the technology itself, just like this, the learning experience is not in watching the video. The learning experience is not taking notes on the video. Taking notes is excellent literary literacy practice is not an experience. The learning experience in this lesson requires students to arrange the names, the dates, the corresponding atomic theories, and image depictions of each of those atomic theories on a timeline I prepared ahead of time. The timeline's completely blank, except for tick marks where the students would drag and drop the information where they believe it belongs. Students not only enjoy this activity, they actually also accomplish the learning goals as they're learning the information. And the outcome itself is an artifact, not just for me to collect as proof that they've engaged with the lesson, as a way for me to formatively assess what they've learned, but for them, it takes the place of boring note-taking and they can continually refer to or study from it. And I can continually show it. I believe I even include it in one of my following review previews as that unit is entirely focused on the future scientists beyond Rutherford. We have Bohr and Schrodinger and their different things. So I continue to use it throughout the unit to prepare them for the test. And in chemistry, being able to describe the development of modern atomic theory in the context of historical accounts as an important standard. I get super excited talking about this lesson and even delivering it to my students because I always lamented, how could I be a history teacher? I mean, history was my worst subject in my own schooling. I remember when I was... Um, with my mentor teacher because before I became certified, she had me teach the nuclear unit and she wanted me to talk about Marie Curie and these people, you know, and I'm talking about them. She's got this like written story on a transparency. I'm using her stuff because she was, she liked things done her way. <laughs> so I didn't do a whole lot of experimenting when I was in her classroom. Um, but, oh, I just was like, really, can I not teach that because this is so boring and I don't see any reason why we have to teach or why they have to know the history of it. But, 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 can I tell you that through reframing and making the lesson um, do what they have to do as an outcome, but to do it as part of the lesson and then to continually spiral on that gives a tremendous meaning. And honestly, we go back to talking about Thompson and Rutherford throughout that whole first semester because of the, the movement of electrons and different things. So I get excited. Another great resource besides videos for learning experiences is text. 
Now, <laughs> I can't tell you I get as excited about that because I don't. We do not have super strong readers at my school. We do not have super strong math skills at my school. And no one is like filtering students who take chemistry. So I just get the melting pot. I get a mix of it all. Um, and can I just tell you how happy I am that I've got this library of interactive science lessons already complete this coming school year in particular? A very central component of my school's improvement goals, improvement plan for the state is literacy. Before I made the switch to student-centered learning, I had no evidence of common core standards in any of my lessons. We'd receive training on them from time to time and I'd always come up empty as to how I'd accomplish those goals. It was kind of like when we talked about differentiation. Here, you should do this, but mm, <laughs> like I don't really know how to tell you how. And I guess lab reports, lab reports, I already told you we don't make them write an introduction and abstract and experimental results. We don't do the, like the real lab reports. So like lab worksheet reports where we might have expected a paragraph or a response, they were pretty much always my team's, my whole science team, not just the chemistry team's response to this um, problem or this satisfying the standard. We didn't have to do anything new or different, they rationalized, because those lab assignments checked off that box. They have to read and they have to write so done. And maybe so. But even when I don't use a text for students to define vocabulary, collect evidence, or make comparisons, and this is something I've had to resort to in some lessons. Like, honestly, I use text as my last resort for a learning experience. When I can't find a simulation, I can't find a video. Those of you who teach chemistry, you're feeling me right now because it's so visual. But I can tell you my lesson on polyatomic ions is text-based. My lesson on synthesis and decomposition reactions, of all things. Can you believe there is no simulation or adequate video for that? I am just dumbfounded. So I find a text and I transform it. And the key, remember here is the text is not the experience, is what you make of that activity, of that um, medium that is the experience. But anyway, even when I'm not using a text specifically as the cornerstone of a learning experience, students are often practicing their writing skills in responding to the learning experience prompts every day. Even if they have a simulation, even if they have a video, they are writing. Oh, my goodness, they're also often writing in review and preview in a big, big way. So I'm relieved that I don't have to rework anything I've got prepared. But more than that, preparing learning experiences such that the students have the opportunity to express themselves in writing, and here's the key, in my opinion, and receive real-time feedback on those written ideas, that's optimal when it comes to building literacy in our students. No matter the medium I choose as a subject for learning experience for a specific lesson, there are some aspects I always include to help facilitate delivery, to minimize confusion that makes them, you know, freeze. I can't do this, freeze. And ensure the uncovering work of learning is being done. And I'm going to attempt to share those with you here as I wrap up. First, I always create what I call a your task slide to present. This slide present, uh, provides an overview of the activity in the form of bullet points. The bullet points usually begin with verbs. 
things they're going to do with the focus of our investigation. And they usually match some of the success criteria I've outlined for the lesson. Not all of them, naturally, because there's also some skill practice in there. There's also some literacy stuff in there. I nearly always provide a visual image of the technology or video or text source with annotations. When I present this information, I use the opportunity to talk through the activity instructions and the process they're going to use with just the image. So I never just go, here's the instructions, go. <laughs> I always do a little talking. I've found this gray area between um, giving them some direction but letting them take the reins. Because if I, if I give my students no direction, they will, I don't know what to press or where to go. And even though the instructions are right there written for them, they will claim, I don't know what to do. They need me, just like your students need you. And so giving them that little bit of talk through makes them feel comfortable, in my opinion. I'm not sure it does a whole lot more than that. If specific buttons need to be pressed or anything less than obvious needs to happen, I mention it then. Also on this slide, I provide any clickable links to technology to my students because we're all on computers. And in the old technology I had, which is changing this year, so I'm sure you'll get some podcast episodes on my use of book widgets to live um, review student work because that's where I'm going this year. My school's not going there, but I'm going there because my school is switching to this more Zoom-like program, which loses all, in my opinion, so many of the benefits we had with our other software. But anyway, I used to be able to put a link on the board, they click it. Um, you might do this if you share your lesson notes as PowerPoint with your students in like a Google Classroom, Google Slides or something. But in the interactive science lessons I sell, I try to I try to think about the challenges you will have in incorporating technology in the classroom. And so I also provide a QR code for your students to use to connect to the technology, realizing this, realizing this might be a quicker, easier way to get them up and running during class time. <clears throat> Honestly, if I were in your situation, I would consider printing out the QR code of the day and having it ready on their desks when they enter class. And that might be a great idea for, you know, that traditional in-person instruction. I actually share the learning experience technology links I have with my students during review preview. Because remember, that's a period of time where it's like a warm up. Some, some of my students get there early. Some of my students finish review preview early. And so it's just a time that is identified as get it together, get ready for class. <clears throat> so maybe while they're waiting for class to begin. As you can imagine, though, avoiding or ironing out tech troubles early is important when your lesson is built on technology. Um, it should not be an excuse for you not to use technology. 21st century skills and all that, right? Um, and there's plenty of free websites. I use a free website to make my QR codes. I do not pay for fancy QR codes. So any technology you find for your lessons can also be transformed into a QR code. Print them all out, cut them all out, put them on the student's desk for when they arrive, and boom, they're ready to go. In addition to the Your Task slide that I present as instructions, I prepare another slide on which students document their observations, their analysis, or otherwise answer questions that I've prompted to deepen their learning. It might include tables or graphs or a spot for them to actually snapshot their own picture as evidence of what they've done. 
This is the slide I collect from them for participation points at the end of class. I also select from these slides to showcase and to discuss work when the learning experience time has ended. I love to show student artifacts because I can anonymously praise and likewise anonymously redirect when, which enhances the collaborative culture of the classroom and fosters growth mindset. My students love this too. Especially in my unique environment, often sought out by students so they aren't front and center, so to speak. Believe it or not, there are students who don't like to be publicly praised, even praised, let alone, you know, being corrected, even praise. They feel the personal pride of praise when it's anonymous, and they avoid that perceived embarrassment when they're wrong, or worse, inaction, you know, they pre we prevent inaction, their inaction, because of maybe they have an anticipated fear of being wrong. Isn't that always the case? Well, I didn't raise my hand because I thought I was wrong. I didn't want to do this assignment because I don't know. But they know, but their mind has taken control of them, right? And I feel that this may not be an issue for you because maybe your classroom, you know, so many different schools, and the way things work, they range from very, very small numbers of students in a room who all know each other and they're very, very tight-knit to college-like high school campuses where actually nobody knows anybody and the cliques are so big that they don't even know somebody in the next clique. And anyway, this may not be an issue for you, but for me, I have found the anonymous sharing to be supremely successful in my classroom. I would dare to proclaim that no one ever learns at the expense of someone else's mistake. Everybody, at, you know, at, at the personal expense. I love mistakes and they know it. And I hate when they usually apologize for it, but that happens privately, you know. Um, I think there's enough positivity around that. And as the year goes on, they start to feel. They start to feel the love. Hey, I'm contributing even though I made a mistake. Because oftentimes those mistakes were made to be made, right? <laughs> we know they're going to make the mistakes. We can anticipate some of them. All right, finally, I seek to create learning experience that demand 30 to 50% of class time. And this could get hard to juggle. My first year, I was like totally strung out all the time about finishing in time. Having done this two years, I'm a little bit more confident, but time is just generally the devil sitting on my shoulder for everything in life. So maybe it's not that way for you. The others of visible learning remind us to, quote, keep in mind that the goal is to create sufficient time and space for students to acquire and consolidate knowledge with an eye toward moving on to deepen their understanding. So if we're designing challenging learning experiences, we need to expect them to take time. And of course, all students learn and do at their own pace. You might have some early finishers. You might have someone, some who can never seem to finish within the time provided. I do. Even the most simple tasks. And that frustrates them. I can never finish in time. But I can't hold back for one student. You can't hold back for one or two or three students. 
Once the learning experience time is finished, I work toward ensuring that everyone in class sees the same thing. We don't redo the experience, but we, I have planned ahead of time to pick out the highlights so everybody can think through the same important questions, which lead to that uncovering. For students who didn't quite finish the entire thing, they've got all the data in front of them after the activity time to go through the same motions of learning as everyone else. And usually they get a good portion of the experience. They just may not have finished, you know, the entire list of what there is to do. And I'm constantly telling them, it's okay if you don't finish. Because I just told you, I'm planning 30 to 50% of class time. If they have 15 minutes or 20 minutes to come, because my minutes are 50 minute periods. If they have 20 minutes to complete an activity, it's very likely that in 20 minutes, they've done at least half. And I've planned it so that if they've done at least half, they've seen enough to do what they need, you know, to, to take the big takeaways. They understand, the, they've done the process, they've engaged enough. Now, if your students like fell asleep, that's a totally different story. Some of mine step away to make a sandwich, you know, I don't know. But what I'm referring to in talking about this whole group collection after learning experience, I call data-dependent analysis. And I always do it with the whole group. It's always after the learning experience. It's the fourth of my five elements of effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning. In the free download that's available on my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements, the learning experience notes and the data-dependent analysis notes share the same page. That's because the two are intimately related. Without the learning experience, there's no data analysis. And the data analysis is what allows us to create conclusions. <clears throat> Just like we do in the scientific method. <laughs> so tune in next week for more on that. For now, friends, I'll bid you adieu. Have a great day. And remember that you can respond to this or any podcast episode in the Lab in Every Lesson community at community.labineverylesson.com. You can direct message me there as well. Keep your questions coming. I look forward to hearing from you soon.